welcome to Democracy Nerd. Whereas we talked about last time, we're not just going to try to watch as Rome burns or even just watch circuses as it does. But in fact, we're going to try to help highlight the people who are seeing to it that it doesn't. Seeing to it that we're not just watching as democracy declines, but we're working to make sure that there's another era of flourishing democracy. Where do millionaires play? What's their role? I didn't say billionaire. Millionaire isn't what it used to be. Now even billionaire, heck. Elon Musk just announced, bought Twitter for $44 billion. 10 years ago, Musk was worth $2 billion. That was a lot of money. Today, he's worth $257 billion. That's the wealth not of a rich person. That's the wealth of a nation state. Mark Zuckerberg, $72 billion. Jeff Bezos, $180 million. 10 years ago, it was $18 billion. So when I say millionaire, I mean millionaire. I don't mean billionaire. And there are a lot of millionaires in the United States. In fact, if you live in an urban area, and own a home, which is something that many people in young generation don't have a chance to do, don't have the economic opportunity to do right now, and have an IRA and a 401k, there's a chance you're a millionaire and you might not feel like you thought a millionaire would feel when you were a kid blank number of years or decades ago. That said, what is the role of the millionaire in preserving and advancing democracy? There's a group that's asking or maybe answering that question. They're called patriotic millionaires. Today, we are talking with Morris Pearl about that very thing. And rather than me describing everything that patriotic millionaires does, why don't I ask Morris? Morris, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Great to be on your show, Jefferson. First of all, even before patriotic millionaires introduction, what was your first reaction when you heard the news that Elon Musk wanted to buy Twitter, did you think, oh, well, yeah, people to say things all the time. And then what was your reaction when you heard that, in fact, the deal was going to go through? Oh, <clears throat> he'd been kind of unhappy about Twitter before. And he's a rich guy. He can go buy it and make it do what he wants it to do. I mean, that's what people with money can do. Doesn't surprise me. He's spending, you know, as you said, 10 or 20% of his wealth on Twitter. And maybe that's worth it to him. It probably he'll get more happiness from Twitter than he will from the money sitting there in the bank doing nothing for him. Morris, you were a former managing director of BlackRock, one of the largest uh, conglomerations of capital in the world, uh, now chair of Patriotic Millionaires. Let's get into Patriarch Millionaires. What the heck is it? Why do you do what you do? Well, we created the group a little over 10 years ago after the election in 2010. And we basically, a bunch of people got together and signed a letter to President Obama. You should let the Bush tax cuts from 10 years ago expire just for the top bracket. It doesn't make any sense to give the wealthiest people in our country, the ones who are already doing the best, a tax break continuing. And then, I mean, he thought we were kind of dorks, or at least that's what Ms. Jarrett said he thought. But after a while, they realized we were actually helping them, giving them some political space to do what they actually wanted to do. So the president had us stand with him 
when he gave his famous Buffett rule speech, said it's not fair that these people standing with me are paying a lower tax rate than their assistants who are also standing here on the podium in the White House. And that sort of set off the group and we've expanded a bit. We now have hundreds of members from around the country and we've been working to promote policies to decrease this destabilizing inequality because we see the nation kind of falling apart. We see it becoming more and more, all the riches going to a few at the top and everyone else who has to work for a living, well, whatever. And that doesn't work. That's not long-term good for anybody, even the rich people. You know, they tried that in South Africa when I was a teenager. That did not end well for the rich people there either. So we're trying to do something here in America so that we can have the same kind of stable country for our children and grandchildren that we had when we were growing up. That's what we're trying to do. Now, I understand it when a group of Amazon workers or a group of Starbucks workers decide to unionize and fight for wages. I I recognize that interest. Uh, And I think most people can. Tax cuts the upper levels for somebody who was a managing director of BlackRock. uh, Those tax cuts didn't hurt you. They didn't reduce your Medicaid. Uh, They almost certainly benefited uh, your, you know, your account would have said, oh, this tax is pretty good for you. Why do you care? Well, tell you, first of all, yeah, I am far wealthier now than I was in 2017, in large part because my stocks and my stock portfolio have gone up and up and up. And a large reason for that is because the taxes paid by the companies that issue that stock has gone down. So the government's getting less, I'm getting more. Um, And that's been fine financially for me, but I'm kind of afraid that we're ending up with the wrong kind of country because so much of the wealth is going to so few and it's not like we're spending it. It's not like we're supporting all the local businesses. I became wealthy and people I know became wealthy owning and investing in businesses, the kind of businesses that are supported by people who pay their bills every month people who pay their iPhone charge every month, people who pay their rent every month, people who make enough money to live on and live okay and have some left over for eating in a restaurant. And when we have a society where all the riches are going to a few with the money trickling up, it doesn't trickle down the way they say, it trickles up in little bits and all those 99 cents and $2 that you pay for every iPhone app going up to those of us who own shares in Apple and Verizon and the other companies, it's, it's just not sustainable. We're going to end up with a system with, you know, where we won't be able to build new businesses for our children and grandchildren because there won't be any people with any money to shop anywhere. That's what I'm concerned about. I want my kids, and I now have one granddaughter, to grow up in the kind of country with the kind of opportunities that I had when I was growing up. Let's talk about the opportunities you had growing up and how you ended up doing what you were doing. What was the sort of career arc to make it to BlackRock? Well, I had a lot of things going for me. Um, first of all, when I grew up, my parents had subsidized mortgages from the FHA, like most people had. Well, most people who are sort of white people 
and ma- male head of households with or stay-at-home housewife. They, of course, weren't available for black people. That wouldn't be good. But um, that was and that that was the law when I was growing up. And then my father, when he had to make decisions, he owned a bunch of small stores in six different small towns in upstate New York. He had to consult the accountant. So I thought to myself, I want to be an accountant. So I went to school in Philadelphia to Penn. And I thought I wanted to study accounting, but then I found out it was actually involved work and I'm kind of lazy. So I went to computer engineering instead. I became a computer engineer. I ended up starting a consulting group with a bunch of my friends. And then shortly after that, I got a job in investment banking where they needed some whiz kid computer scientists to build mathematical models of things to do asset securitizations. And I spent most of my career um, you know, connecting the Main Street people that need mortgages to the Wall Street people who had money and collecting a little bit to make my friends and I get very rich in the process. Um, so that was most of my career. I ended up at BlackRock um, in 2003. And shortly thereafter, you know, in the financial crisis, got involved in having government agencies as my clients. Um, we started working for the U.S. Treasury and the Fed, trying to figure out how much the bailout of Citibank was going to cost the taxpayers. You know, I did projects like that in the United Kingdom when they bailed out Lloyd's and RBS, and then in the Republic of Ireland. I spent a lot of time in Greece. And it was really one day in Greece. I, we were doing a due diligence meeting on the top floor, fancy dining room at a bank headquarters. And I walked over to the window so people wouldn't see I was taking two chocolate puddings from the dessert table. And all of a sudden, I thought I was watching a parade. And I realized I was actually watching like a demonstration or a riot kind of moving down the street towards parliament. And I turned around. I looked at these couple of dozen bankers whose jobs we were hopefully saving by getting their bank bailed out. And I kind of thought to myself, are we really doing any good for the rest of the people of Greece other than these guys? And a few months later, I told them I've done as much as I could can for the shareholders of BlackRock. And I've been working full time doing policy and advocacy and po- politics work um, since early 2014. I will say the words, thank you. Did you do, were you engaged politically while this was happening? And I will say this resonates with me, right? So, so I, uh, I went to a, went to fancy law school, also had the kind of middle-class white privilege of, of uh, a subsidized mortgage and being able to uh, live in life as a young kid. We were poor when I was a, when I was a kid, uh, but certainly not by global standards and certainly not. And, and by the time I went to, uh, and by the time I went off to college, right, we were in a, in a fine position to be able to go to state school and not have to get in big debt. Uh, and went off to uh, went off to law school, went to fancy law school, and then uh, and and took a job with the with walked to Lipton, a you know high high paying uh, law firm in, in Manhattan, and sort of earlier than you and before I had made it a ton of dough, had sort of a similar had sort of a you know sort of a similar feeling. I, I wondered had I had I stayed on sort of a corporate path, how I might have, and I think a lot of people who are precocious ambitious, uh, have some degree of social concern and also want their life to, you know, be interesting and meaningful and want praise from their, uh, from their parents and their, and their peers. Uh, how, 
they and how you sort of navigate that, not only when you sort of say, okay, I've made my bag, now I'm going to devote myself. Former former managing partner of our city's largest law firm has sort of a similar, similar thing. He was the head of the law firm. And that is, you know what? And he, he's dedicated the last 20 years to building an environmental nonprofit, right? And, and I sort of understand that. I'm also curious, not only about the culmination of that journey, but as it's going on, are you making donations during that time? Are you advising during that time? Are you just focused on the work and building the, you know, sort of mortgage software tools, et cetera? Um, um, I had kids in the late eighties and early nineties, you know, I tried to spend time with them. I was pretty dedicated to my jobs. I was doing building big software systems, running big research departments at, you know, major investment banks over the time. Um, but I, you know, we were also interested in politics, kind of the way that like ardent baseball fans are interested in the Yankees, you know, and sitting in the stands with their score pads and keeping track of singles and doubles and everything. And, you know, we saw Howard Dean speak in 2003 or 2004. Uh, he was the governor of Vermont at that time. So it must have been 2003. And we got interested and thought, oh, this guy seems for real and he seems to know what he's doing. And Vermont's a fairly small state. So my family had moved to uh, Burlington, Vermont um, when I was 16. So we kind of knew, you know, you kind of knew a lot of people in Vermont. And um, we started following then governor and soon presidential candidate Dean and got involved in his campaign and raising money and talking to people. And then um, the convention was in Boston that year. And my wife wanted to go to the convention. She said, oh, you know, Carrie won. So the Carrie people go to the convention and we can watch on TV. But she didn't like that answer. And so a few tens of thousands of dollars of donations later, we found ourselves ensconced to the Four Seasons Hotel and special passes to go sit in the, uh, sit in the seats in the uh, Boston Garden there while the... Um, you know, funny looking, skinny black guy from Chicago gave his purple state speech. Yeah. And I was um, there as well. What we found out um, was that for a few tens of thousands of dollars, you can become anybody's best friend. Um, and so we've been kind of deeply involved in politics ever since. Shortly thereafter, I, you know, I got a call from someone who said she worked for a, a um, grandmother from San Francisco who thought she might be Speaker of the House someday. And um, I could stop in and have breakfast on my way to work. Uh, and I did. And it was, I guess, in some sense, the most expensive free breakfast I ever had. But um, since then, I've gotten very involved in politics and supporting candidates who are trying to do things to make our country for my children, the kind of country where I grew up. And so I've, so I've been pretty involved ever since. Go, go back to the breakfast. You said the most expensive breakfast. Who was the breakfast with? What was the breakfast about? Well, we had breakfast with um, Nancy Pelosi, who was then the minority leader. Yeah. That was shortly after Gephardt left the leadership to run for president, Dick Gephardt. Um, and then Nancy Pelosi became the minority leader of the Democratic caucus at that time. I remember distinctly, um, we were sitting in the Regency Hotel in the big dining room 
where they coined the power breakfast term. And um, the um, leader of the Senate, um, uh, Senator um, Ziff came by and everyone was kind of following around and fawning around as he was going into one of the back rooms to have breakfast with, with some of the Tishas who owned the hotel. You know, the people that own the New York Giants and a bunch of other things. And, um, you know, now, you know, things have changed and, you know, a lot of things have happened since then. And we've made a lot of progress. Some of these ideas that were considered crazy off the wall ideas 10 or 20 years ago are now mainstream ideas. The president of the United States is supporting some of the things that we're advocating for. The chairman of the Senate Finance Committee is proposing some of the things that we've been advocating for all that time. So I think we've seen a huge movement, not seeing bills signed into law yet very much, but we've seen a huge movement in our direction over that you know roughly 20-year period. So what's your favorite crazy or your craziest favorite idea that felt not within sort of the Overton window 20 years ago that now feels like, I don't know, a Democratic uh, trifecta, maybe 60 votes away from happening? Well, just investors paying the same tax rates as people who work for a living. How about that for a crazy idea? I pay far lower taxes than somebody who has an act gets the same amount of money that I do from an actual job. Let's get to patriotic millionaires. Who are the other patriotic millionaires? How many of them are there? How many, how much patriotism is there among the millionaires? Well, a lot of people are patriotic. The number who actually are paying members of our group is between two and 300. Um, how much does it cost? Well, we, we're looking for donations of at least $10,000 from each person. Yep. And that money goes to support our staff. We have a couple of dozen staffers who are basically running an operation to help our members speak out, to help our members write op-eds or letters to the editor, help our members get on podcasts like yours and talk to journalists and do all these things. So those are the people we're looking for is people who want to speak out and could use a little bit of help doing it. And that's kind of the function of our group is to get our members to speak out because you know, it can be headline news and, oh, millionaires want higher tax on millionaires, kind of like man bites dog. You know, I can go on something like Fox News. I'm either introduced to some crazy person who will entertain them for a few minutes or some guy who has some idea that no one's ever thought of before. And uh, both of those are fine, but it's a lot of work in that. So that's why we um, have a big staff and, a, uh, you know, now a lot of members. It's going very well. So the theory of change, you spend those, you know, 200, 300 people kicking in their 10 grand or more a year, hire that staff. Uh, what's the theory of change? What's the related to that, or maybe the same question, sort of what's the strategy? It's move the needle in terms of public advocacy, sort of awareness building, get in the media, uh, advance, advance sort of ideas. Is there, are there donations that happen to other organizations or candidates? Talk more about the strategy. Mostly it's doing things that get in the media to change the notion that, oh, you have to appease the rich people or they'll you know, take their ball and run away or something like that. You know, the answer you know, from our you know, former governor here in New York, from so many others, has been, oh, if we raise tax on rich people, they'll, well, it's not clear what they'll do, but because 
you know, we're not going to move to Zimbabwe or something. But there's this underlying notion that, oh, we have to appease the rich people. And we're trying to dissuade our lawmakers of that notion by actually here are some actual rich people. And no, changing their tax rate is not going to make them decide to, I don't know, keep all their money in cash and close their businesses or something like that. We try to explain to our lawmakers that, you know, corporate profits, corporate taxes, corporate taxes are assessed on profits. Profits are calculated after deducting payroll. So if you pay workers more, that results in less, less taxes, not more taxes. People are under these false assumptions that, oh, if we change the tax rates, they'll have to pay people less because they won't you know, change how much they, the owner gets. Um, you know, we explained that, oh, how much the, own, the owners pay the workers whatever it takes to get the workers to work. And then what the owners get to keep is whatever's left at the end. It's not the other way around. Um, so by having actual business people, investors and rich people come talk to lawmakers, you know, and we can give them a different perspective than, you know, some guy who's read Ayn Rand and thinks he knows about the Chicago school without ever having been within a thousand miles from Chicago. In terms of first principles, sort of foci of the critical millionaires, uh, equal political representation, livable minimum wage, fair tax system. Did I get those three right? Are there more? Do you rank them differently? Well, those are the three things we work on. We can't work on everything. So we try to focus on three specific, well, three more specific things. And as you said, make the tax system more fair so that rich people pay at least the same tax rates as people who work for a living, not lower as is currently the case. Have people get a minimum wage that's high enough to live on and decrease the influence of the rich in politics above the influence of everyone else, having some kind of campaign finance reform system. I want to go back to strategy. You organize and get stuff in the media. We'll talk about the roadshow you're going on. You play sort of people who can be experts, not only speaking to their own financial self-interest, but having kind of a base of economic credibility to speak to decision makers so that it doesn't feel like just a one-sided debate. Somebody wants a tax cut for themselves versus somebody who you know doesn't have the same life experience to speak with is, with the same kind of credibility. I get that stuff. The strategy around getting the existing media to talk about stuff, I now see through the filter to some degree of how I opened our conversation, which is Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter. And Mark Zuckerberg already owns Facebook. And if you look at the top 10, uh, you know, if you look at the Forbes, at the wealthiest people in the world are certainly in the United States. Uh, also on there are two of the founders of Google. Uh, Bloomberg is owns Bloomberg. Uh, if we now Amazon now owns the Washington Post and is its own media entity, the strategy about uh, lobbying the media or getting in the media. How do you think about that as distinct from a strategy of owning it? And uh, and as you think about that, I'll give a little bit more of a backdrop because here's my now thinking. If you if you analogize the turn of this past century, we moved from the uh, industrial age to the information age, and compare that to the turn of the previous century, we moved from an agrarian age to an industrial age. And the robber barons, the industrialists, 
were uh, running roughshod over the country and then were taken to task, were checked a bit uh, by journalists, by media uh, that included progressive Republican media, which included working class, small, well, big D Democratic media as well. And Upton Sinclair writes a book about meatpacking plants and starts building a movement and helps build the modern labor movement, et cetera. Now, the wealthiest industrialists aren't industrialists at all. They are, in fact, owning the gymnasiums of the mind. They are media owners, either like Elon Musk because they're now buying them or because that's how they did it in the first place. How do we think about a strategy of getting people together to lobby the existing media as distinct from, not as opposed to, but as distinct from, or in conjunction with trying to own media, whether it's you know Fox News or, or Rush Limbaugh's show and then the Hannity Network and or social media, et cetera. Talk about that for a bit. You know, owning media is a bit outside of my immediate domain. We are not, um, I'm not planning to own any media. Nowadays, it's not that hard, as you know, to start your own show, whether it's a podcast or something else. And yes, you're going through the internet, which is owned or controlled by, you know, Google or Verizon or whomever. Um, but so far, I don't think that's been a major problem for us. And I think we've always had the rich controlling a lot of media. You know, not far from where I live, there's a statue of Joseph Pulitzer who funded the Pulitzer Prizes. He funded it by what we now call yellow journalism. He basically goaded America into starting a war by making up stuff about the Spanish attacking you know, Americans in Cuba, I think. Um, so I think we've always had the issue of a lot of our media controlled by the rich. And that's sort of been how, the, how it's always been. But I think that there's been always been enough and there still is a bit enough for, you know, other people to get through that. Um, you know, these guys, most of them are interested in making money and they are interested in serving their constituents. I don't know about Mr. Musk. He's just started owning Twitter or he's barely started yet. But most news media are interested in making money, and that means getting lots of people to watch their media. Um, so I think they're still interested in providing for everybody, whether it's the right or the left or the middle or whomever. Um, so I don't think that owning media is a reasonable answer because the billionaires, frankly, have a lot more money than regular people do. That's why they're billionaires. So I don't think we can compete with them on actually owning stuff and having media. But I think we have to compete with them in the, you know, in the marketplace of ideas and explain to the vast majority of people that more progressive policies are actually what they want. I heard you say a couple of things. I heard you say, well, that's not what we're set up to do. And then I heard you say, it's a, well, it's to some degree a capacity question. If you have $247 billion, then spending $44 billion to get Twitter is one thing. If what you have is, you know, $40 million, then, you know, 200, even $250 million is a different proposition. I want to, and I hear that loud and clear, it's really reasonable. I want to push back on something else you said, which was, well, it's always been thus. Maybe it has, certainly. And this is why I also said that the different, this difference between billionaires and millionaires. 
And I think it's interesting that the group is not patriotic billionaires. Right? <laughs> and, and there aren't, you know, as many, two, there aren't 200 to 300 progressive billionaires you could organize. I can sort of get that. You might not exclude a billionaire. Maybe you have some already. Uh, the, well, you're about to say something. Go ahead. I was saying we have a couple of, you know, billionaires or almost billionaires. But at some level, people prefer to start their own organizations. Yeah. So if you're willing to spend a couple million dollars a year on this, you can hire your own personal staff and have your own organization. So we mostly have people who don't really have the resources to create their own organization, who don't want to spend millions of dollars a year, but are willing and able to spend tens of thousands of dollars a year. Those are the kinds of people that we have in our organization. And yeah, you're pretty rich if you're spending five figures a year on politics and policy, right. um, but not necessarily as rich as someone like, you know, Tom Staley, who might spend many millions of dollars a year and, you know, his group. And this is what I think is interesting, right? I think it's really, uh, you, know, or, uh, you know, Tom Steyer, who put in a bunch of, who put a bunch of dough, uh, the Bloomberg similarly. But this is one of the things I find really interesting. One of the reasons I'm a big fan of what you're doing and why I really appreciate it is because to, I don't know, a socialist friend of mine, the, they might paint anybody that you could use the word rich for with sort of a similar brush. But with the level of stratification that is in the economy now, bigger than any time since the turn of the last century, there is a vast difference. What you're doing is a collective exercise. It's a collective exercise that you know, you're going to be okay. You're going to pay your mortgage, probably don't even need one, right? Whether or not this group proceeds, it's different from Amazon workers organizing. But at the same time, to have the kind of impact that Patriotic Millionaires has and works to have, it is not just the work of a single oligarch. It has to be the work of dozens or even hundreds of people. It's one of the reasons I'm a fan of the thing. Not that I wouldn't appreciate you know, Warren Buffett deciding that he should spend $4 billion, not $1 million on trying to save democracy. But that difference is worth noting and us actually understanding what's happening with wealth and how wealth is impacting politics and not just being simplistic, including the most vigorous advocates and activists, not being too simplistic about sort of saying, well, there's rich people and there's everybody else. We say, wait, wait, no, let's actually think about more strategically. And in fact, having uh, working collective exercise with other millionaires can have real strategic leverage. The issue I wanted to take was it maybe it's always been thus, right? Where sort of rich people did stuff or Pulitzer did stuff. Uh, you, you, no poor person has ever owned a newspaper, right? No, no poor person's probably been on the board of CBS News. But in the same way, there's a difference between most of the members of the patriotic millionaires and somebody who can fund their own organization, right? Somebody who can spend a few million dollars a year rather than you know, some number of tens of thousands of dollars a year. I compare that to 100 years ago. Yes, Pulitzer. Yes, heck, the owners of the, the, the Newhouse family, for instance, is wealthy families. But not Rockefeller, not Carnegie, not Ford, not Vanderbilt, not J.P. Morgan, the, uh, not, not James Hill, right? the so-called so -called robber barons. They could be held to account by millionaires who own media, by the writers of newspapers who were owned by millionaires and who were themselves probably not even close to millionaires. Do you see any difference 
in the work that is needed now and sort of the strategic landscape now than at other times in history, given changes in media and given the larger uh, wealth gaps that we see now relative to 30 years ago? Has that changed the playing field? Well, I'm sure that it has. I mean, it's hard to see. I mean, it's, it's hard to know. But yeah, I'm concerned that so much of our media is owned by, you know, either large companies or people who are interested in making, you know, more financial interests than journalism interests. And I'm also on the board of a publishing, a nonprofit publisher called Capital in Maine that, um, that works on these exact issues. Um, so I am concerned about journalism. Um, you know, it's hard for me to say, you know, how was it 50 or 100 years ago? For me, too, know. to be clear. <laughs> like, yeah. I, like I, was, I, did, I, I read nothing published by Joseph Pulitzer. Yeah. So it's, it's you know, it's difficult. But yes, I'm worried about it. Um, and yeah, we're not likely to get Michael Bloomberg to sign up as a member of our group. Um, I'm not even sure he'd agree with all of our policy. And he does. He can just walk into his office and get another couple of dozen people to start his own political thing sure. if he wants to. And in fact, he did on more than one occasion. Um, so, yeah, we are a bunch of wealthy people, sort of top 1%, but not much above the top 1%, you know, maybe the bottom half of the top 1%, you know, who are trying to act collectively and pooling our resources and doing something. That's kind of how this nation was founded. You know, this nation was founded by a bunch of wealthy people who created things called commonwealths, like, you know, the commonwealths of Virginia and Pennsylvania and Massachusetts, um, because they were very wealthy by their standards in their time. But they knew that they had to put their wealth together to do things to make our nation what they wanted to be. And that's what they did. And we need to bring that sort of philosophy back to America. We need to go away from the philosophy of, you know, Ronald Reagan looking like the Marlboro man on his horse riding around by himself and more to the thing of, you know, lots of people hanging around the Boston common kind of sharing it. And I think we need to bring back the philosophy that we're all in this together, whether you're rich or poor, and that if the rich try to take everything, they're going to be killing the goose that lays the gold eggs and it doesn't work. My hypothesis or a a or an hypothesis of mine is that to understand modern democracy, we have to understand modern wealth and the difference between oligarchic level wealth, unilateral decision-making wealth, and the wealth that where people have comfort and ability to impact and at the same time to enact policy change, we'll have to get other people to agree with them in order to do a major, major large-scale project have to have other people who work with them. Let's talk about one of those projects you're working on. It's the Tax the Rich Roadshow. What's going on? You're going out, actually live events, not just uh, not just Zoom meetings, I think. Talk about it. Sure. Well, we published our book, Tax the Rich. And, um, and if you need copies, let us know. We can send you some more. Please. That'd be great. And um, yeah, so we'll, we'll send you some copies for you to give to your um, listeners. And what we did is we originally wanted to do like a traditional thing where we go on to speak at bookstores around the country. This pandemic thing came along. Most bookstores weren't doing live events anymore. Right. 
And so we did Zoom events. In some cases, it turned out probably better than it would have doing live events. Um, we've done a handful of live events recently. Um, but we basically do, and you can see on our, um, on our website, taxtherich.com, uh, we have a, a video of at least some of them. We do, Erica Payne, the co-author, is the president and founder of Patriotic Millionaires. She and I do like a 15-minute sort of scripted, prepared presentation of sort of the high, some of the high points of the book. And then we take questions from people. And people ask pretty good questions usually. Um, and so that's been going pretty well. Um, we were in a couple of live events recently. We went to Kentucky. We made a field trip. We went to Louisville. We went to Lexington. We went to, I think, Moorhead. And we spoke in front of groups of people in those places, mostly college students. Uh, but we got a very good reception for our message. And our message is basically in the book, we're basically explaining these ridiculous things in the tax code that mean that wealthy investors like me pay far lower tax rates than pretty much anyone else, anyone who works for a living. And that's basically what our, what our presentation is about. And that's mostly what the book is about. What's the reception you're getting? 98, 99% positive. Um, you know, and the few negative people are people who are just sort of against everything, I think. And of course, I mostly live in a bubble. I'm here, I'm here on the east side of Manhattan. Um, you know, I don't generally talk to that many people who, you know, disagree with me all the time. But almost invariably, people say, yeah, it's, it, you're right. It's not fair that rich investors pay lower tax rates than I do. Very few people think that they should pay higher tax rates than rich investors do. When you and your board, when you and your advisors, when you and your collaborators, your commonwealth uh, discuss what a success look like, and I don't mean to an unrealistic degree, right? But let's say you put another 10 years into this, right? You pick your time frame, And after it, you have realistic and or reach goals to accomplish in, in addition to impacting the conversation. But what, that, what does that beget? How do you see that success? Or how do you and your team see that success? Well, I think if we change some of the rules around the way our tax system works, we will see less inequality in our country. If we take a little bit more from the very richest, we can take a little bit less from the people who work for a living, people who have minimum wage jobs or just above minimum wage jobs. And then there'll be more people were able to go out to eat and pay their bills and do stuff. And that will actually increase the economy by having more shop owners and more restaurants making more money. And the and by the few hundred people at the very top will not really be any different if they have to pay more taxes because they'll just be a little bit less wealthy, but they won't have to live any differently. That's the kind of thing we're looking for. You mentioned campaign finance reform impacting the playing field itself of electoral campaigns was one of the, those base principles, one of those key objective areas for the patriotic millionaires. Say more about how that manifests itself. Do you have particular uh, efforts, either in particular states or federally? Do you have policy proposals you're advancing more? Let's nerd out for a moment. Heck, that's the name of the show. 
Sure. I mean, there's there have been proposals in um, you know HR one and S one that are in, in the United States Congress now. Here in New York City, we've had a campaign finance system that basically we used to have a system where everyone who ran for city council was like the brother-in-law or close friend of a real estate developer. Now we have a system where if someone wants to run for city council, they can go around, get a few hundred people to donate a hundred bucks each. Then, then from the campaign finance board, they get like $200,000. And that's enough to run for city council. And yes, some people stick with the old system and some people are very rich and that's okay for they want to, they want to run for office too. But a lot of people have run for office using this new campaign finance system. And it's really changed the face of our city call or changed the faces in our city council anyway. And it's really made a big difference in the policies that they enact. Because they're not just representing rich real estate developers. They're representing people who you know, have to pay rent every month and people who live in those apartments and everyone else who lives in New York. So it's really a big difference. And I think it will make a big difference if we enact a system like that for federal candidates, you know, for the House of Representatives in the United States Senate. You know, I've had too many meetings where people expect me to give thousands of dollars to someone running for Congress from some district on the other side of the country. And that's because they need thousands of dollars and they need millions of dollars and they can't collect it a few bucks at a time. So they end up trying to go to people who can donate thousands. And as I said the, you know, earlier in the show, you can become anybody's best friend for a few tens of thousands of dollars, but that's not the way the system should work. It's part of our problem is that these guys spend all of their time in these little booths in their offices, in not even their offices, in the party offices, making phone calls to potential donors. And they spend so much time talking to donors and they end up very versed in whatever their problems are, they kind of forget that that group doesn't represent everyone. And I was at a cocktail party not that many years ago in a penthouse in Manhattan. And somebody says, oh, it's a good thing I'm not a self-funder like this other candidate because only events like this, I meet regular people. And I thought to myself, if you think that a bunch of people who paid a thousand bucks each to spend two minutes talking to you about their problems are regular people. I want to lobby you for a moment. You said, well, if we can do that in New York, let's do it in Congress. I think it'd be a good idea. Where I want to lobby you is to think about getting it done in municipalities around the country. So we did a similar thing in Portland, Oregon. Yeah. If you did that in the major metropolitan areas of the United States, you would change the landscape of political organizing and political leadership in the country, even if you never did Congress. Not proposing you don't do Congress, I'm not pushing against that, right? Changing how Congress is paid for be a big, big deal. But you could get it done in city councils and in cities all around the country. Not in every city, but in a lot of them, because the you don't have the same uh, control within city councils in the United States by uh, Coke-funded elements, by the, by Fox News, et cetera, right? The political landscape within municipalities is very, very different. And if you did it just in cities, you did it just in cities, you would have all of a sudden all of these young leaders working for the campaigns, getting elected, people who are used to a different kind of politics at the early stages, who would then also become members of the party, who would also become members of uh, even multiple political parties, potentially, who would then 
also preserve some of the resource that people like you are spending on, you know, various city council races, and instead saying, well, what if I spent that resource on swing district legislative races, right, or on swing district congressional races, and work sort of bottom up, huge fan of doing it, uh, and wanted to lobby you to lobby your folks, I know there's a lot of New York focus, but to actually put that effort in getting it done in 50 cities around the country would change America. Yeah, we could we could we could look at that. I mean, we have members in majority of the states, of the United States, and um, and maybe that is something we should do. We, we've gone to a couple of places. Um, I even went to Jefferson City once um, in Missouri to uh, to when they were proposing a very tiny little thing about this. But um, yeah, we can do something like that. How are you thinking now? Do you think about your political contributions differently now than you did prior to being engaged in Patriarch Millionaires or prior to doing this essentially full time? Was well, one problem with having these business cards to say Patriotic Millionaires on them? Is <laughs> Thanks that you a mark? You're just a target, man. <laughs> yeah, I found that out. I mean, here I have my cell phone here, and you know, just since we've been talking, I've had, I have dozens of emails here. <laughs> mostly people requesting money, you know, th- several at 321, 324, 327, 330, 335, 339. You know, um, so I tend to ignore- What are those numbers? Of- what were the numbers you were just saying? Oh, just the the times. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Time of day, excuse of minutes. me, your Eastern time, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, these are in Eastern time. Yeah, I've had about a dozen since three o'clock and it's now not quite four. Um, yeah, so I got a lot of requests for money. And every one of them, oh, my district is so important because somebody so awful is running against me and it's Trump's best friend or something. Um, and they're all good people. But, you know, I can't send money to all of them. Yeah. Um, you know, so. Um, How do you budget so your political yeah. giving? Because it's one of the questions I'm interested in, right? So as somebody who... and. Uh, but now, I, and I've been to a couple as COVID, I've been to a couple of fundraisers and people says, what are you up to? And I said it. And now I've started to get a different kind of phone call. Right. And I'm like, oh, I cannot afford. Right. I cannot afford to sit before. Nobody would ask. I would have a non-profiteer. You know, so okay, I'd give my 50 bucks and that'd be it. But, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not Elon Musk. I'm not you. Like I can't get you know, I couldn't give five thousand dollars to 100 people. Right. Without it significantly, you know, like, like depleting my ability to retire. Uh, how do you manage your budget? And the other people are thinking about because because I want people to tithe for democracy. That's ultimately what I want. I want people to take to take a share of their ill-gotten gains and make sure that the common thing works. And I want them to do it strategically so they don't get scared about the idea of too many people asking. You are now somebody who has a business card that everybody's going to call you, and you're on everybody's list because you're out doing stuff, right? How do you manage it so you still preserve the relationships and so you preserve your budget? Well, I mean. I'll tell you, one thing is, is our group runs an endorsement process. We occasionally endorse, we sometimes endorse candidates. So we get to meet some of them and I occasionally support some of them. Um, two, I mostly give money to some of the committees like the DCCC and there's a few other committees like that. And that's sort of, I can sort of tell you, well, I, you know, I give my money to these committees and they dole it out to whatever races their experts think are most important. And I'm just being honest with you. I'm not sure it's the best thing to do. No, please, I appreciate it. Um, and then there's a few people who are either real champions of some of our causes, like say Jeff Merkley, you know, or Elizabeth Warren, 
or that I've gotten to make personal relationships with, like some of our local people, you know, like Jerry Nadler, you know, or Nancy Pelosi. And so that's kind of what I do. I, you know, I give to a few races of people that I've gotten to know fairly well over the years or people we work with on things. And I give um, mostly to the committees. I want to give that, pass along some of that advice and amplify some of it. I see this. I didn't even think it was advice. I'm just telling you what I do. So I'm going to translate it to, I'm going to translate it to a couple pieces of advice. Or if advice is too strong a word, habits of people who I've seen do this intentionally. And it tends to, they tend to put it in two buckets. I've definitely identified three buckets. Not everybody's intentional about it. None of us are fully rational utility maximizers, right? We're moved by emotion. Tend to be, I see three buckets of strategy that seem to make sense. And a mixture of them seems to make a lot of sense. So one is this process bucket. My family and I budget blank thousands of dollars a year. I see this with people who budget $500 a year in political giving. I see it with people who budget $5,000 a year in political, in, in political giving. But one is a process right? We, and that process could be okay. We get together, you know, four months before the election, we identify what we think are the most important races. And we say, here's what we're going to give. And we identify an amount we can give, and then we do it over the course. Okay. So that process. Second, urgency, right? That's, I should have saved that for third, because that's kind of the cheat. And then the third one is relationship, right? The, well, this is one we've definitely built the relationship. That's of course, why people spend their time on the phone call. Stepping away from patriotic millionaires, but sticking with wealth political strategy. Uh, I, you presumably follow the Democracy Alliance, which is the you know, set, a, you know, a large set of high net worth individuals who have uh, dedicated a bunch of money to try to build pros or essentially Democratic Party, but kind of progressive infrastructure around politics. How much do you follow it? I don't follow it nearly as much as I used to. And any thoughts on it, on where they're getting it right or what needs to change? Um, I'm not a member of the Democracy Alliance. Sure. I've spoken at their conventions or meetings, whatever they call them, a number of times in San Francisco and Washington and a few other places. Um, I mean, I can't really comment about what they're getting right or wrong or whatever. Yep. You know, I found in my travels, a lot of rich people think that being rich is a sign of being very smart and therefore they know best, better than anybody about how things should be run and what, you know, what should be done. And maybe they're right, but maybe not. So I tend, you know, there's tend to be different kinds of, of like organizations. There's some that very much see themselves as providing a service to their donors and they work for the donors. You know, I've met one person who was running a organization to get young people civically involved and Every employee had to be interviewed by their biggest donor or one of their biggest donors. You know, that was just part of the deal. They did that. Um, the president of our group, Patriotic Millionaires, um, is Erica Payne. I don't think she'd put up with that, you know, <laughs> not for a day. So different people are different. And some things are successful, more successful than others. Um, you know, we sort of, we're sort of in a competitive marketplace of not just financially, but organizations and ideas too. I mean, in some sense, we, the patriotic millionaires, are competing with other organizations that that solicit donations from you know wealthy progressive people, and they make their own decisions about what to give to, and different different people have different priorities. You know, some people want to say, "Oh, how many net democratic votes will this project get?" We don't have an answer for that question because 
advocating for more progressive taxation, who knows, will get you any net democratic votes. You know, different funders have different priorities and do things differently. And we do the best we can with what we have. We have certain resources. We have, you know, our founder, Erica Payne, is a marketing genius. And so she's applying her expertise to solve America's problems as best she can. And fortunately, some hundreds of people have chosen to, you know, join our organization and help. I want to pull out something that I heard you say. You didn't use the word entitlement, but I'm going to. And I have witnessed, I remember there was a, a friend of mine who, uh, who was a wealthy person and, and she ran for office. And I realized that uh, when she was running, it was the first time in political conversations that she was used to being disagreed with a lot. For 10 years, she had been in conversation after conversation with you know, leading political actors, you know, leading political players in the region, and they would all nod. You know, she would be consistent. She's very smart. She would consistently be the smartest. And part of that was because most of those conversations were either about or in the shadow of someday there being a conversation about asking for money. And all of a sudden she goes in and runs for office and not all of the, you know, not everybody's nodding all of the time. How do you manage the, this idea or either how do you manage this, how do you think about it? Where somebody has been expert and excellent in one field, figuring out how that should or shouldn't translate to therefore understanding how the government should run or understanding how one should impact how the government runs. Well, I mean, think of myself, I know a lot about mortgage finance. I worked in mortgages for decades, institutional you know, institutional money mortgages, investing with Fannie Mae, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and Ginnie Mae and the like. So I know a lot about that. I don't really know more than the average person at much of anything else, but I recognize that. I mean, plenty of people, you know, think they're experts in everything because they're rich um, and they think that they're just more, they're just intellectually superior. And maybe sometimes they are intellectually superior. I wouldn't know. Oftentimes, I'm at some reception or something, and somebody says, oh, I want to thank you for, but they never say your donation. They'll say, I want to thank you for your judgment and your experience and your wisdom and all that you've given to us. And I want to say, like, I don't have more judgment and wisdom than the average person (laughs) because I handed you a check for, for X thousands of dollars. I have more money than the average person does. But so it's just, but I think they honestly believe it, you know, I, and, and they do. Well, and some of it, to be clear, and I've sat in that chair, some of it is because nobody wants to be appreciated only for their money. No donor in any nonprofit exercise really wants to think, oh yeah, they just want me for my money. Nobody wants that any relationship, even though that's a critical piece of it, right? It, it is more polite. It is kinder. It is better for getting the donation and for getting a follow-up donation to say, thank you for your brilliance rather than thank you for your $10,000. Well, that's true. And I'm, I'm sure it is. And yes, people have these long conversations oftentimes, and you know, I'm sure they get tired of it after a while. But I think you're right. I, I really do. That's how people want to be. I know one person who's an extremely wealthy because of the heir of someone who made a lot of money, you know, a billionaire. And, you know, this guy, I don't know that he's ever actually had a regular job in his life, but he has actually hired some people 
and built a small little political advising organization. And he's become a politics expert, you know, and he goes around with his small entourage and knows everything when he goes to some meeting with politicians. And um, at least that's what you'd think from watching people interact with the guy. No, and it's fascinating, right? To me, how do we leverage the credibility of wealth? How do we extract or how do we marshal it or organize it? And at the same time, uh, make sure that it is not merely and, and balance any costs from that, right? But we're, trying to, we're trying to use it. I mean, that's the other reason I have these business cards say patriotic millionaires on them. Very few people turn down a meeting with the chairman of the patriotic millionaire. Exactly. And so we're trying to actually make use of that. We're actually trying to get our, we actually, and we're very successful at that, of getting politicians, political, you know, elected officials, legislators, to meet with our members and listen to them. And whether it's because they think that our members are actually smarter, or they think our members are rich, or both, or some other reason, we get meetings with a lot of people. Yep. You know, when I, when I go to Washington, I'm not waiting in line at the visitor center to get a tour of the Capitol. You know, I'm walking in the official business entrance with an appointment with someone on the second floor to, you know, go talk to them. And one of the things that helps lasting credibility is that you are consistently advocating, your group is consistently advocating, not merely an advancement of your own self-interest. Right. It'd be if you were the patriotic millionaires for general economic policy, anytime you said, well, what if we did, you know, consider this change, the capital gains tax, or what if we did do something that might be in the interest, it would be different. But when you're consistently talking about how do we impact the world money in politics, how do we make sure there's a fair minimum wage and how do we make sure there's a fair tax system, you know, it, it amplifies sort of moral credibility, I imagine. I think so. I mean, I do tell people that I'm actually advocating for policies, which I do think will help me in the long run and help me and my family. You know, I don't claim to be totally altruistic, but I claim that these more progressive policies will actually be better for all of us, including my granddaughter. Um, and so that's why I'm advocating for them. How would you describe the politics of BlackRock? BlackRock doesn't really have politics. It's It has thousands of employees. They occasionally invite legislators to speak at, you know, events. Um, but I wouldn't say the firm has politics. They have a few people who go advocate for policies occasionally, usually very technical things about how the asset management business is regulated and often in favor of more regulation. I mean, I honestly, I mean, some of the people in the firm have politics. I know I certainly was in the firm. And I had politics and, you know, some of the, some of the, you know, there's a lot of very wealthy people who work there. And some of them have political views, but I honestly wouldn't say the firm has politics. It's kind of a money, it's a money management company. What, what does BlackRock have now? $10 trillion under management, uh, uh, something like that. What are the implications of when there is, when there are organizations of that scale, moving that degree of capitalism, which is more of what you mentioned before, that's oh, always been sort of thus, or is there anything happening different with the conglomeration of capital? I mean, to be honest, I don't really think so. That $10 trillion or how many trillions it is, it was only $1 trillion when I was there. It's other people's money. Yeah, it's other people's money, and they know that. It's a fiduciary organization. So it's basically 
there are th- hundreds or thousands probably now of portfolio managers running different portfolios. So it's kind of like mutual funds. I mean, there's hundreds of mutual funds. There's hundreds of you know, insurance company accounts and pension funds and all these things. So it's not like there's one guy who's in charge of trillions of dollars. It's like there's a thousand guys each in charge of a few hundred million dollars or something. I mean, I don't, I mean, I honestly, I mean, I honestly don't see that. It is, I mean, it is something that sort of the beneficial owner of something is so far removed from the management. I think it is sort of a problem. We don't really have sort of shareholder democracy the way we did years ago, because the actual shareholders are so far removed from the management of the company that sort of, you know, voting at annual meetings is kind of a, well, I want to say a joke, but slightly above a joke. So I think that sort of thing has bogged down a bit because it's sort of these money managers are voting for things how they think they should be. But of course, very few things are controversial even. I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I think it's, I don't know if it's any more or less of a problem than any other system would be. Let's play magic megaphone. Imagine you had a megaphone that could communicate a message, a principle, either well-crafted or still needing the work of a marketing genius to craft, and you're going to deliver it to the world. You deliver it to everybody or everybody you want to deliver to in the world, but you could only say a limited amount, essentially one thing, maybe more than a sentence, but one thing with a magic megaphone. It's like imagining a magic wand or a one wish, but it's a communications device. And you can say whatever you might say. It, it could be, it could be love thy neighbor. I'd be down with whatever, but I, I'm interested in a particular tension. I'm not sure if it's attention. Maybe it's only attention in my own brain. And that is if I had a magic wand, not a magic megaphone, would I first wave the magic wand to save the middle class under the idea that saving the middle class will make democracy work? Or do I wave my magic wand to make democracy work? Because I believe if democracy works, we will get a middle class. I wonder if you think about it, and you don't have to make that choice in your day-to-day because you all work on both. You work on directly on issues of democracy and directly on issues of trying to make sure we have a somewhat more fair economic system. For you, if you had to pick, which should you do first? So Larry Lessig, his sort of famous line is, you know, I, I, what I'm working on, can be finance work, was what he was talking about, is not the most important thing. What you're working on is the most important thing. Uh, public health, uh, climate change, et cetera. But what I'm working on is the first thing. There's that view, but there's another view. If you had your magic megaphone, do you focus on a quality of economy, a quality of democracy or something else entirely? Well, democracy is not an end in and of itself. It's a tool to an end. Um, You know, as Churchill said, it's the worst system of government except for all the others. I mean, I think if we had, what we really want is, and we don't really want equality of finances, really. We want less inequality, but um, I don't think I don't think it's practical to say we want total equality either. I mean, if I was going to do something, I would focus on the economic issues, really. You know, the fact that we should change our tax system so that people who work for a living don't pay more taxes than rich investors do. That's kind of my my primary message. And I think from that, you get less inequality and eventually you get less less resentment and less people in despair and, you know, generally, you know, less people who just don't want to cooperate with society anymore. And so you'd eventually get towards democracy. But I think even the, I think this is the main point the other side makes actually is that democracy is a 
tool to get to a place. It's not the it's not the goal. It's a it's a means of getting to a goal. So and they think the question and and it's one of the things I wrestle with, right? Yeah, there is there is an argument to be made that in fact maybe us figuring out how we live together and make decisions collectively is as first order a goal as sort of anything else. But that's part of what I'm curious about. Well, I think strategically you might it might indeed be a good idea to be first for democracy because if you don't have democracy, you can't get anything else. Um, no, I, I wanted your answer. You gave a great answer, which I yeah. appreciate. Morris Pearl, chair of the Patriotic Millionaires. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. Thank you so much for the time you're spending. This was great, man. Great to be in your show, Jefferson. Thank yeah. you. Be well. Thank you. Really appreciated the conversation with Morris and appreciate you listening to it. And also just really appreciate you being a democracy nerd in the first place, listening to this show at all, sharing it with any friends at all, even just giving a damn about democracy. What we'll say is, Three, the first three people or three people at random, if there's people who are kind of tied, uh, will send you the book, Attacks the Rich, the Patriotic Millionaires book, and you can have it and display it on your mantle and have that as your Democracy Nerd gift. Thank you so much for being one, and we love you. Democracy Nerds recorded in sunny Portland, Oregon, produced by Kyle Curtis. Thanks also to technical producer Sig Seliger. Logo designed by Kat Buckley at kbuckleygraphics.com. I am Jefferson Smith. Thank you so much for listening. You can rate and review. Hope you will. And follow Democracy Nerd on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Past episodes of the show, Democracy Nerd, can be found online at democracynerd.us. Go America. Thank you. Thank you, Democracy Nerd.